How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. There's a fresh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a time of one good scare. Well, hello, and welcome to the Cinema Shock. Why do you keep saying the Cinema Shock, Gary? It feels right, because I know truthfully, it does, it, truthfully, what ends up happening is still built inside of me it's like oh this is pro wrestling i still have it built inside of me that this is the nwa and it's the same here every time i start to say it i'm still feeling psychotronic film society start to come out do we need to uh, write this down for you every week probably but anyway well here we are we go in depth on all your favorite cinema genre movies it's this it's it's not the cinema it's just cinema shock cinema shock is this podcast and i am one of your hosts of it and my name is gary horde I am uh, Justin Bishop. We're joined today uh, by special guest, Mr. Todd A. Davis, a.k.a. T.D. Jakes. Apparently. I don't know I why, but be- before we started recording, for some reason, Gary referred to Todd as T.D. Jakes, I guess because of the T.D. Um, Todd Davis. Often they both have They both have beards. With an African and they both love reference. money. Uh, you thought I was going to say Jesus. You thought I was going to say Jesus, but I said money because that's more true. It's 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 accurate. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> hey guys, have, thanks for having me back. I love Every alienating people, our listeners. Fucking week <laughs> since we've been doing this show. <laughs> so, guys, for the last five weeks, we've been discussing all of these movies. This is week six of our Six Degrees of Kill Bill. So, for the Ooh. last five weeks, we've discussed films that are directly referenced by Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill. I'm sure you've been. Hopefully, you've been listening along. And enjoying these movies. This has been a fun series, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah I've re- it's been fun. I've seen some I've really I haven't dug seen it. before, yeah, and awesome. I've, I've enjoyed everything. Yeah, I feel like, um, I mean, I, there are a couple of these I haven't seen. Most, uh, I think most of them I had at one point or another. Todd, I think, has not seen any of these until we started watching the series. Were uh, any of these rewatches for you, Todd? Uh, no, no, none no, of these were all new. Yeah, these were all new. We're expanding me. Todd's film watching horizon. Well, and I was just going to say, like, even if there was stuff that I wasn't like super, like super into, I really enjoy the fact like sitting down to watch it and being able to speak knowledgeably about like, I've seen it. I'm not super into it, but I have seen it and can tell you whatever. And right. uh, I, I love that. I love being able to follow along with you guys. Well, and, and I love it too. Thing. It's, it's fun to not be the, uh, you know, the only person who hasn't seen a movie. I have enjoyed that. <laughs> so I don't feel stupid when I'm talking to Justin the whole time. Um, we've had the experiences like watching thriller where uh, I had to temper my dislike of the movie so that it didn't offend DJ at his tattoo. Like I still feel guilty <laughs> that I didn't like it more. <laughs> you don't have to like everything. Nobody <laughs> says you do. Yeah, that's true. So, a lot of the films that we've talked about, they have been, I mean, some of them have, are referenced pretty obviously by Kill Bill. You know, uh, some of them, it's some of them, it's a more aesthetic reference, you know, like Thriller and Game of Death. Like, I mean, Thriller is a revenge movie, but it's mostly 
the aesthetic of of the one eye and you know as l driver while others like especially lady snowblood and death rides a horse i would say directly influence the plot of kill bill but this week for the sixth and final film in this series we are watching a movie that has a little bit of plot uh you know inspiration for kill bill but this one's unique in that this is the only movie in the series that characters from Kill Bill are actually seen watching during the movie. So uh, so this is going to be a really fun one. And that movie, of course, that we're talking about this week is the 1980 film Shogun Assassin. Journey through a lost empire of mad wizards and barbaric passions. Behold the saga of a legendary warrior, a loving father who has the power of a dozen armies in one sweep of his mystic blade. This is a story of honor, disgrace, vengeance, massacre, and a man who became a demon. Shogun Assassin. So Shogun Assassin is actually a re-edit of two older films, the first two films in the Lone Wolf and Cub series. And the Lone Wolf and Cub films themselves were adaptations of a manga, and much like uh, one that we discussed a few weeks ago, Lady Snowblood. And like Lady Snowblood, the Lone Wolf and Cub manga was written by Kazuo Koiki. We're back in this guy's brain. I love his brain, honestly. I, I do too. Uh, I love I, listening to interviews with this guy. He's awesome. He seems like he'd be a lot of fun to have a whiskey with, just to sit out he and does. have a, uh, a, a Santori. A Santori. With. There you <laughs> exactly. go. Yeah, um, now we're talking. Yeah. Like, I mean, the Lady Snowblood thing and now this. Like, he. Um, I mean, he's dead now, so it'd be really odd uh, to do that seems now. seems more fun to me now. Um, <laughs> yeah, he died in um, 2019. So he hasn't been, he died about a year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is uh, technically Lone Wolf started before Snowblood, but both were, yeah, super successful. Yeah. So the idea behind Lone Wolf and Cub kind of began to form in Koiki's mind in the mid 1960s when he, uh, you know, we, we discussed this a little bit during our Lady Snowblood episode, but Koiki is a student of Buddhism and specifically the Bushido Code, which is a uh, another rabbit hole we won't go down right now but it's basically the samurai code uh, and he felt that the parent-child bonds were beginning to erode all across japanese society and he wanted to write a story that would set a positive example so out of so this first idea this, first kill the mom well hey you know <laughs> you gotta start somewhere <laughs> show the mom's titty and then kill her yeah i was like i was and i was super whole it's like Oh, is there? Is she pulling out like a charm or like a note to stick with the baby or something? Nope, just whipping out the titty. <laughs> baby gotta eat. Sure. Come on, yeah. So he got out of this kind of idea formed a story about a samurai raising a son alone, and he actually had a uh, an infant nephew that served as inspiration for the character for the child uh, Daigoro. So what you have to understand, we didn't discuss this a lot during our Lady Snowblood episode. But it is hard to understate just how big 
manga and, and comic books were specifically the comic books created for the adult market were in Japan at this time. Like it was a, it was an industry that rivaled film and television for audience size and cultural relevance. And Koiki was one of the giants of the movement. Like he was huge. I mean, if you look at this, this guy's uh, bibliography, it is massive. And this was, what he considers his magnum opus. It probably is the, the most impactful, uh, most culturally huge thing that he ever wrote. But he's written a lot of stuff that is like, this This is one of many of his works that have been adapted into film or, or television or anime, for example. I feel embarrassed that like, even at the time of Lady Snowblood, I didn't realize who I was talking about because like, well, look, and nobody on the podcast can see this, but I have these. I have one. Nice. It's the first few. Um I- and there's 28 of them so yeah yeah so i don't have all of them but what i was just showing them is the lone wolf and cub uh collection um i think now there's actually like a bigger version of it like a omnibus version yeah. of yeah. them i i'm ashamed i'm ashamed to say like as you were giving us the intro justin i was checking my comiXology account i was like do i have any lone wolf and club lone wolf and cub and sadly i don't and i really enjoyed this so now i'm definitely going to seek out the original manga well it's pretty similar i mean there's obviously if you watch the japanese versions it catches more closely with this but anyway to go back to what justin was talking about um well the first part of it similar to what kuiki's tackling with lady snowblood he's got to focus on something he feels is lost in modernizing japan last time he relied on uh norio asada to kind of realize that on the screenplay but get the basic thought when he was adapting it but in this one he actually gets to tackle it himself as a screenwriter on on the original thing yeah. um and you know we only touched on kuiki just a little bit but i just wanted to say too like yeah, you you were kind of going into this i mean he's a he's a big deal uh he was i mean and not just in comics like he was a tv host uh he started some golf magazine he was a poet uh famous yeah. for that he any he, and he obviously like we're, we're finding out here he wrote screenplays um, but it'll always be known for the manga side of things. So between like Lone Wolf, Snowblood, uh, there's one called Crying Freeman that he did. Crying Freeman that was adapted into a movie by Christoph Gans. Yeah. Back in, I don't know, late 90s probably. It's got Mark Dacascos in it. I think that's right. Um, yeah, the guy from yeah. Double Dragon. He's in a lot more better movies than Double Dragon. But yes, he is in Double Dragon. <laughs> but also, Koiki ended up mentoring like so many manga creators later on. He was pretty responsible for how huge manga became in Japan. Yeah. Of course, and his main driving focus always, and you can tell this, is in his words, uh, the quote I found from that I liked is the comics are carried by characters. If a character is well created, the comic will become a hit. Yeah. He's yeah, a he's a yeah, in the Eisner Award Hall of Fame. Like he's a huge presence in the comic world. Todd, you'll appreciate this, but around the time he was writing Lone Wolf and Cub, he did write a Hulk manga. Really? It's called Hulk the manga. Okay. <laughs> it came Clever. out it came out between 1970-1971, but yeah, it is a an adaptation of the Marvel character Hulk. I'm yeah. right I'm writing it down. <laughs> Yeah, pretty cool. I'm, I'm not I, sure what the availability is. It actually, well, now that you say that, that feels actually like perfect for him. That feels like yeah. the character he should tackle. Yeah, there was a Spider-Man manga and a an X-Men one that were all published around the same time. He did not write those, but it was part of that same sort of series. Wait a minute. This the is time. the one, um, like, when did you say this was? 
1971. Oh, okay. I was thinking about when they did the redesign of Spider-Man, like looking like Scotty Young, almost like kind of took over that oh, look. Oh, uh, Legend, uh, Legend of the Spider-Clan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, this this would have been in the early 70s, and it actually has a um, a different character as Spider-Man. Uh, it's not Peter Parker. It's another another character's name, a Japanese name, and it's set in Japan, uh, but it's essentially the same kind of they've sir i mean marvel i think marvel does more of this than dc does but i think marvel has circled around back to uh, definitely embracing the japanese culture and style in terms of storytelling i just finished watching the marvel i believe it's marvel 616 documentary on disney plus uh talking about the japanese spider-man and it's a fascinating story. Live action, in, the live action. Yeah, the live action yeah, yeah. one, which looks super cheesy until like you hear the story of like, oh, okay, that's why they did you know X, Y, and Z. Well, one of anyway. the crazy parts with with this too, you know, you're talking about comics and like your appreciation of comics is that I mean the thing to understand with Japan is that we're not talking like Marvel created the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's like manga. Like the it's like if manga or if if Marvel comics were just as popular as what's on in the movie theaters, right? Mm-hmm. I mean these are they are huge. Like everyone re- is reading these books at this time, right? And he was at the forefront of this. And another guy that was at the forefront of this was an artist by the name of Goseki Kojima. So Kojima, uh, he he and Koichi worked together a lot, including on Lone Wolf and Cub. They worked together on quite a few series but this was the first one that they worked on and kojima is a self-proclaimed film fan uh, he began his career in uh like painting he was he was a painter initially uh he did movie advertisements he worked as a projectionist in a movie theater he was always sort of very inspired by film in his arts like if you look at the the lone wolf and cub comics they are not structured like the the images are not structured like your typical comic book they're very cinematic so and he he yeah. says that he was equally influenced by japanese tradi- kind of traditional japanese aesthetics which you can definitely see in this comic uh film technique and pure pulp entertainment he was kind of the perfect person to capture this story if anybody if anybody out there is hearing this being like, you know what? I dig film, but I also dig comics and I want to get into this a little bit more. Highly recommend um, Understanding Comics by uh, Scott McCloud because he does an in-depth study of not only how your brain interprets comics, but the different styles of comics and uh, specifically uh, manga. So I highly recommend that book, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud and really get into... Uh, his breakdown of manga and how it is very cinematic and it's really awesome. So Lone Wolf and Cub as a manga was first released in Japan in an issue of Manga Action Magazine in 1970. It was serialized and it was almost instantly a hit. Uh, It sold something like 8 million copies uh, and it is an epic series in every sense of the word. Like it, it ran from September 1970 until April 1976. Uh, It spans 28 volumes with each volume over 300 pages a piece uh, for a grand total of more, there's more than 8,700 pages making up this entire series. It is ridiculously big, well, uh, which makes it all the more impressive that the film series is able to capture the heart of it as well as it does. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and not only, I mean, for Koiki, uh, I mean, 
he's also doing Lady Snowblood at this time at, at a point. Like he, he right. eventually starts Lady Snowblood. So he's overlapping like storytelling in both these places. And uh, so he's. Uh, Did they ever cross over? I don't think. I mean, I mean I like, not, no. I'm not trying to make a joke or anything, like, because that would have been really fucking well, awesome. They're set during different historical periods. That's true. Uh, yeah, okay. um, two, two different if time you, periods. If you remember when we talked about Lady Snowblood, that takes place during the uh, Meiji period. This takes place during the Edo period, which is the period okay. that uh, takes place right before that. It kind of takes place at towards the end of that period because you do see a little bit of modernization creeping in. Uh, in some of the later Lone Wolf and Cub movies, you see. Uh, there are guns involved. Oh, yeah. uh, there, there are people. There's a, a guy who wields pistols. There are soldiers with muskets. Uh, but this does take place a significant amount of time beforehand, so that that wouldn't have really been possible in the world of the characters. Wiki and Kojima uh, together, though, just to round that out, they were known as the golden duo. Uh, they were like the pinnacle of the manga world. Uh, and in fact, when uh, there was a magazine that came out that was huge in Japan called Manga Japan Magazine at, launched in 1994. And it was going to be like the place where it collected all the greatest manga or like everybody wanted a piece of that. Uh, if you were an aspiring artist or creator or something, Kojima was actually hired as a consultant on the magazine just so he would train Japan's next generation of artists. Like everybody was just like, let's let's build on what he's already doing. Um in his later yep, sounds years, like a sounds like a Japanese version of heavy metal. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in his later years, for what it's worth, uh, he he turned to uh, doing his own like just original graphic novels. But loosely, uh, he he died in two thousand. Kuiki, like you said, died in twenty nineteen. But his last few years, he was just doing uh, original graphic no novels based on the works of his favorite film director, which was uh, Akira Kurosawa. Wow. Nice, Very and. Cool. Uh, Again, for any comic fans out there who aren't quite grasping the size and of that of that amount of work, at one point Brian Michael Bendis was considered like the workhorse of all workhorses. I think he was working on six or seven Marvel titles at one time, and that amount of work doesn't scratch the surface of this. Like no, this no. is huge, huge. So it was incredibly popular, and the film rights to the comic were snatched up pretty quickly, and development began on an adaptation initially in, as a single television movie. Uh, the first choice to play Ito Agami was an actor by the name of Tetsuya Watari. He's a matinee star at the time. Uh, a couple of weeks ago on the Lady Snowblood episode, I believe it was, we were talking about Nikatsu Noir, uh, those films that were being produced uh, by the Nikatsu studio at the time. One of those is a movie called Tokyo Drifter, highly, highly recommended. It might've even been my like further viewing or one of those at that on that episode. But uh, this guy, Watari, he is the star of that movie. He, he was kind of a big star at the time. He wasn't able to do it because he had fallen ill, had to pass. And so an actor by the name of Shintaro Katsu, who is the star of the long running Zatoichi film series was approached to play the role. Now, Justin, I have a, I have a question. When you yeah. say, a, when you say a matinee star and this, if this is dumb, you can cut it out. But when you say a matinee star, what what makes a matinee star? Today, a, somebody might be listening, Todd, that has that exact same question. <laughs> well, I am the audience audience surrogate, so here we go. It, it's, <laughs> he's a matinee. He's a he's a uh, he's a box office draw. Okay, uh, and he is a matinee idol, teen idol type. Uh, he's older than a teen idol, but 
Uh, he was just, he was, uh, I, I would say an American version of a, what I would call a matinee idol or a matinee star is someone like Brad Pitt, you know, okay. very well liked a big box office draw. Uh, the women want to be with him and the men want to be him. Okay. I didn't know if like <laughs> matinee star meant was like, he's in films that are only shown earlier in the day or. That's yeah. not what matinee always I, means. Yeah, I don't, I was, no, that's fine. I, now I know. He's, and no, he's the and early bird special of movie yeah, stars. That's, that's what I was like. Is that a thing in Japan? <laughs> <laughs> so Shintaro, Shintaro Katsu's given name at birth was Toshia Okumura. He had a long career in the Japanese film industry. And although he'd had a lot of success as an actor and not only Zatoichi, but in a couple of other long-running series. They didn't run quite as long as Adoichi, but he was in the long-running uh, Akumio series and the Hoodlum Soldier series. He was a contracted actor with Dae Company, uh, one of the major studios in Japan at the time. And as a contracted actor, he was forced to play in a lot of stuff that he just didn't like. That's what happens when you have a contract with a studio. That's mm-hmm. why you know studios don't have that now. Stars have enough clout to not have to do that anymore. But he had to make a lot of movies that he thought were shit. Basically, he he literally said like about some of the movies he was in. He was like, "These movies should be burned." Oh, jeez. <laughs> so he got tired of being in these movies that he didn't that he wasn't proud of, you know. So he formed his own production company so that he could choose the types of films that he would make. Some some people birth. like it's it's not. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I was just thinking about this. I was like, who would fit it perfectly in this system? Would be like a Nicolas Cage. <laughs> you just feel like fucking bring it yeah, <laughs> just do it. yeah. <laughs> but that's how we got katsu productions nice but katsu was busy with zadoichi and his other film roles so he was not able to star in lone wolf and cuff himself but he saw potential in the material uh, and he also saw that its potential was much bigger than what could be contained on the small screen so he acquired the rights to it himself under the banner of his own production company but still the movie needed a star and luckily Katsu knew someone who might be perfect for the role who someone who thought felt that they were perfect for the role and someone who happened to be a big fan of the comics which was an actor by the name of uh, Tomisaburo Wakayama so Wakayama was born as Masuro Akumura he's an actor from Tokyo who'd grown up in the theater his father was a man named Minoru Okumura who was a well-known kabuki kabuki performer the entire family they were all kabuki performers and yeah, if if the if it's it sounds like a coincidence that he and and uh, Katsu have the same last name, uh, it is because they are they are in fact brothers. They both changed their names, uh, but they are actually Wakayama is the older brother of Shintaro Katsu. This is the Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez of China. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, <this is> Japan, <laughs> Gary. Oh, Japan. I, why did I say China? I don't know. <laughs> Wakayama and his younger brother, they followed their father into the theater, but by the time that he had hit his teens, Wakayama had kind of begun to lose interest, and he found a new love, which was judo. So while he would continue to act, he devoted a lot of his life to the art of judo, eventually becoming a fourth-degree black belt in the martial art. Judo's dope. It's really a lot of fun. As he got older, he continued to perform. That was a quote from him, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> Judo, Judo's dope, <laughs> Judo's dope. <laughs> uh, but he even uh, uh, um, uh, sorry he even toured the US for nine months in 1952 as part of the Azumi Kabuki troupe but once his 
two-year run with that group was over, he kind of, he, he basically decided, I'm giving up theater completely. And he began teaching judo full-time. And he continued to teach until he was recruited by Toho. Uh, Toho, of course, being one of the biggest studios, if not the biggest studio in Japan at the time. And they wanted him to be the new martial arts star in their, I'm going to try to pronounce this, Gary. Oh, I was waiting for it. Jidai <laughs> <laughs> Geki films. Those are what they call period dramas. Mm. So these are movies like, like this. I mean, Lady Snowblood could technically be considered one as well. It's a, it's a period film set during, uh, you know, 100 years ago or more in Japan. Were you going to make a period joke, Gary? It's Lady Snowblood is a period. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. That was, I was going to ignore it until he just like put that sentence together. And it's like, how can I not? Well done. How can I not bring that up? I'm proud of us, honestly. I'm proud of us as a as a group, as a podcast. I think we're doing really well. Thank you. I'm I'm happy to be here. So to prepare for his roles in these movies, he began to practice other martial arts disciplines, such as Kenpo, Aido, Kendo, and Bojutsu. And a lot of those, I had to look them up. I'm not going to pretend I knew what all those were. Ken, uh, Kendo is the only one I knew, and that's because of... Steve Blackman, probably. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the same reason I know it. Yeah, WWF superstar <laughs> Steve Blackman in the Attitude Era. Uh, one of those is competitive eating, if you're curious. Um, I don't think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it's so much fun to think. Is that a fat joke? Are you making no, fun I of No, I just made a fat joke <laughs> about Wakayama. You, Sorry. That is one man I would not make a fat joke about because he will rip your head off. Well, <laughs> the, the, the only reason the I feel him. comfortable is, as a, a chubbier man myself, I feel comfortable <laughs> that it's like, you know, it's like black people make black jokes. It's okay. You know, I'm a fat man. I can make fat jokes. So it's, it's fine. <laughs> but those are, uh, a lot of those are, martial arts that involve training with weapons. Of course, kendo being the, the stick. Uh, Bojutsu is a, a, and Aido are both types of um, sword sword play. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about them to tell you the difference between the two. I mean, it, it goes along. <laughs> it's always challenging me to sword play. <laughs> we're showering. It's weird. It's a whole thing. Anyway. It's so just the, to pass the time. It, a, lot of those st- a lot of those styles, especially the, the sword stuff, lends itself well to uh the samurai the samurai right i mean which is why he's training to do this right and i had a i had a game for playstation back in the day i just it's like i can feel justin being like god shut shut up but i had a game for playstation (laughs) it was called bushido blade and uh i meant to bring this up earlier but man that game was annoying as hell because it was like all based on samurai tradition so you're used to like fighting games like mortal Kombat, where like not only is everything on the table it's like fucking magic too and bushido blade was straight up like samurais just fighting and so they had swords and so they'd like clang together and there were rules like there you had to honor the traditions of bushido so like sometimes like you might swing and hit the guy like the swords would connect, but he'd spin. And if you attacked him immediately after and hit him from behind, you lost points because you attacked them from behind. Oh, wow. Because in Machida, like that you had like a face off video game. I know. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, I just, I've always remembered that game for being just like, come on, man. Like this, yeah. no, there's, this is why you, you people still 
or don't still know what Bushido Blade was. Hold on. What do yeah. you mean? What do you mean, you people? Oh my God, Todd. God damn, Nobody said that. Nobody you said you just said, said you people. Why, well, I thought I said this is why people. You mm. said you people, but you Todd said you had, people, to, had to get weird with it. <laughs> well, okay. Th- this is why you people, meaning <sighs> you white nerds, don't know what <laughs> Bushido Blade is. Ch- Todd's just determined to get us in trouble. <laughs> So this additional training helped Wakayama to land roles in uh, a, a few. I mean, he was making a lot of movies at this time, but uh, this specifically kind of launched him into a period where he was making a lot of these types of movies. Uh, he was in a TV series called The Mute Samurai in 1973, a, uh, a TV series in 1975 called The Bounty Hunter. But it was his role as Ogami Ito in Lone Wolf and Cub for which he is most well known. Now, you'll, you'll notice there's a lot of obvious kind of yada 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 here in this because he quits theater when we were talking about him quitting the theater to teach judo that was in the early 1950s and this is he he's later then we then we say oh yeah then he was recruited by toho that's 20 years later basically how old was Uh, this dude when he did when he did this movie yeah um i i'd I'd have to look it up i cannot remember i want to say he was he was in his 40s he's in his 40s at this point wow yeah, he must have um, been teaching judo like as a teenager. Well, he was probably in his early 20s, late teens, early 20s when he began. Wow. So he began his film career in 1955. Uh, he was still, he was making stuff. He was not doing theater, but he was doing film. And by my count, and by that I mean I looked at his filmography and counted one by one, uh, between the time that he started and the time that he made Lone Wolf and Cub, he had already appeared in 132 movies. Holy shit. Which is insane. God, that's really impressive. <laughs> so throughout his career, he'd been a player at multiple Japanese film studios. He he started with Toho, but he would later work with Toei and Dai, and then back to Toei. So it was during this later stint at Toei that he discovered the Lone Wolf and Cub comic series, which was being published as a serial at a t- at the time. And he immediately knew that he wanted to turn this into a, a film. Unfortunately, Toei wasn't making period films at that time. They were making a lot of Yakuza movies, which were really popular at the time. And they had really no interest in making a period samurai movie. But Wakayama loved making these period dramas. This is kind of what he was known for. And being a skilled swordsman, they played to his strengths. As, as a martial artist, you know, so like he was a natural for these. And if hell, if, if they're not going to make them, what's he going to do? <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously I eat so- his feelings. Oh my God. You can't <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. I saw this, that the only reason I bring he's this he's up. Just I, I, no, I, I have, I had no problem accepting this guy, but don't tell me you guys in your research didn't stumble upon review after review talking about the chubby samurai that's yeah. wondering. I mean, so many reviews talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I guess I, I, you know, I think of, um, you know, the sumo guys are huge. I mean, but that's all, I mean, they're all like solid. I just figured it was kind of like, well, they're not, they're not all rail thin. Like, you know, some of them are going to have some, some heft, some meat, but anyway, I was going to say, um, it's kind of surprising to me that toy wasn't into period samurai films. Cause I would, well, they, they were I mean, becoming... I would, equ- I would equate those to like, 
the uh you know the westerns that were made here i would think that they would yeah, be but, fairly I mean, inexpensive the, to make and you could crank them out fairly quickly I but would if think. they're not going to be if they're not if they're losing popularity with the audiences with especially with younger audiences then yeah. that's not a solid investment the same reason that we say, don't see any westerns being made now I was about to say, I would say that, that Westerns are suffering the same fate. I mean, at least at the time, Westerns were, you know, gun play. You're talking about period dramas of like, uh, like a time nobody connected to. I mean, Japan modernized like yeah. big no, time. Right. And, and you're talking about this guy walking around with a sword, you know, just in honor and like these, these things, I mean, which by the way, is what Koiki's totally focused on. Right. That he's, you know, yeah. that he cares about like capturing from Japan's history. Um, these are things that are just, you know, in the modern age, they start getting more and more lost. Like they're just, mm. what, what is this about? There's no guns. Nobody's shooting at each other. We want to do yeah. gang movies. Yeah. Yakuza uh, movies yeah, were very makes, popular. Makes sense. So after his brother's production company bought the rights to the comic, Wakayama was even more determined to play the role, despite the fact that, as Gary and has pointed out, and as everyone seems to want to point out to Wakayama, he did not physically fit the bill for the character in the comic. Because if you look at the character in the comic, he's a pretty fit, like, comic book. He's a comic book character, you know? Like, yeah, he's, he's got, very like, pecs, and he's abs, yeah. and, yeah, he's a Yeah, he's, a tough... he's got this, like, strong jawline, and, you know, like, he looks fucking cool, you know? Yeah, right. So here's what Wakayama does. He shows up at Katsuo Koiki's home, unannounced and uninvited. He wants to get blessing from the creator of the manga himself. He, I mean, he doesn't have to do this because his brother owns the rights, so he could potentially cast whoever he wanted, but he wanted Koiki's blessing. He wanted to prove to this guy, because he, again, he's a big fan of the comics. So for him, this is probably like a, like, he feels like he needs to get this guy's blessing in order to play this character that he loves so much. Well, this so is part of the reason I bring it up too, is because this is a big deal. And, and, and you got to think, I mean, Koiki, like he, I mean, once he, he got so far as to do a screenplay, but to go back to the Snowblood thing real quick. I mean, one of the things he says, like in interviews you see from him, is like, he, he was, if anything, he's the easiest guy who's like, well, I wrote it. I made what I wanted to make. And now I'm handing it over to filmmakers and I just have to trust the process that hopefully they get the idea. So he's right. not like a guy who's like super like railing he's on not, this thing to be he's perfect. Not like precious about it. Like, you right. know, because he's created his art. Exactly. The, so the way that Koiki tells the story, Wakayama shows up, introduce himself by marching right into his office and saying, watch. And then he cuts a flip in the air and he says, see, I'm fat, but I can do this. So, and the other version of the story that's included in the essay that comes with the, the criterion of Lone Wolf and Cub is that he not only did that, but did, he had his practice sword, his like bamboo practice sword, and did an entire like routine, like in the front yard of Katsuo Koiki's house. Like, he to him that he, steward on it. it was like, hey, look what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to say, it, it's like what Tom Savini did. Yeah. I mean, essentially. Actually, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. It's basically the, exa the exact so, same. To young actors out there, just find <laughs> the producer, director you want to work with and show up at their house, their home with a sword. And, uh, yeah, with a sword, <laughs> you know, or any bladed weapon will do. Or pretend and, uh, you're killing yourself. Like, yeah. Right in front of yeah. Them. <laughs> yeah. And but, they'll hire you. 
Wakayama had it like don't do that don't do that yeah don't do anything that we say ever you know if we're worried about getting canceled i feel like that's the one that's going to show up on uh later the quote saying like this is what you do (laughs) no no one understands me everybody's hating me i'm gonna show up at this director's house because the guys on cinema shock told me to well you guys can't see as it taught us furiously writing a note which is a really great visual gag for a podcast. You're welcome. I'm all what you also can't gags. see is inside my mind where I'm like, potentially, though, that could lead to so many downloads. <laughs> <laughs> but Wakayama, basically, he he was determined. He had it in his mind. He was going to play Lone Wolf. Like, he was ready. And this, by the way, this worked on, on, on Katsuo Koiki. He was sold like he liked i guess he liked his enthusiasm but he also liked his like he he saw what he could physically do because wakiyama is doing shit in this movie as a man who is much larger than me that i could never physically do and he's older than i am at this point you know and and he's got six of these movies ahead of him no no, i was just gonna say and he just looks so much more badass than any of us like he's just he's just like on the level with like clint eastwood like yeah. just with the the Stone face cold, yeah, just ah, constant I, scowl, that stare. That like yeah, just he had to see that. Just, like he had to, yeah. like he had to see that part of it too. It's like this guy like looks I, serious. Like I, you would not, you would not fuck with this guy. No, so many no, people did, fact, thankfully <laughs> for this movie. But as, you should not. As I was watching the series, uh, a few movies into it, I'm like trying to picture what he might look like smiling and i could not do it (laughs) like i could not look at his face and physically figure out how a smile would form on it i think that's why i went to clint eastwood like can you picture clint eastwood with just a big hefty grin on his face like i mean that movie with the monkey that he did he smiles surely he smiles in that one how do you not smile when your co-stars an orangutan i just appreciate the fact that you probably didn't tune into an episode talking about shogun assassin expecting that we would end up on any which way but loose. <laughs> so, you, you never know. You never know where we're going to go on this show. Uh, so anyway, before production on the film could officially begin, it hit a bit of a roadblock. So first of all, even with Koiki's blessing, there was an issue with the fact that the two brothers, Katsu and, and Wakayama, worked for rival studios. Because you see, Katsu Productions had a deal with Dae. They helped dis- to distribute most of the films that Katsu was producing Meanwhile, Wakayama had a contract with Toei. So while this initially caused problems, Katsu, luckily, he'd been in the business for a long time, and he was able to call in a favor from the president of Toei, who gave Wakayama permission to star in the film. But then in December of 1971, while Katsu is in their initial planning stages for the film, Dae declares bankruptcy, which essentially turned the whole project into an indie film without guaranteed distribution now and katsu is scrambling to use the locations and the key staff that they had rented from dai studio facilities wow what justin's saying here for like the the most accurate pop culture reference that i'm sure everyone would get is that this is essentially the first part of this is like current time as we're recording this kitty omega works for aew and tony cod but they cut a deal with impact and the this is something that everyone's gonna understand right yeah they cut a deal with impact wrestling which is a different promotion and they used it to reform a group that they had had in new japan pro wrestling what was this bullet club 
Bullet Club. So they, they, they reformed Bullet Club from these two other promotions that were separate from this third promotion that Bullet Club actually existed in. And it was just a crazy deal. They were like, well, let it happen. Let's see, let's see what we can get out of it. And then they all went out of business. Justin, <laughs> well, Justin, if when you do are, I get to make, and we'll see, get we'll see my... if you're listening to this three years later, I wonder if AEW is still in business. If Just, you are Justin, playing cinema, when do I get to make bingo, my Star Trek metaphor? You, I believe we started the show with that shit. Oh, that's think, right. Oh, that's yeah. Right. <laughs> so if you're playing Cinema Shock Bingo, you can now cross off the square where Gary makes a wrestling reference. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just was thinking, you know, during uh, last podcast, Ben Kissel always gets to make wrestling references. So why should no I hold back? <laughs> <laughs> why should I hold back on this? So as you may have noted, like as we discussed the history, the film histories of all these actors and, and studios, there were a lot of multi-film series being produced quickly and cheaply during this period in Japanese film history. And Wakayama himself appeared in some of these types of films as well. One series that he appeared in was one called Hibotan Bakudo, and it was a multi-film series. I think it's like five or six films, and it was during the filming of this series that he approached his director, a guy named Buchi Saito, a guy who is very fun in interviews. I don't know if you watched any interviews with him, Gary, but he's a character, and this is a guy that he, that Wakayama had worked with in other series on the past, uh, so they had a good relationship. And he asked him if he would like to direct the first Lone Wolf and Cub film for him. And Bucci Saito said no. <laughs> it wasn't that he didn't want to do it. Uh, it was he, was, he was busy at the time. He was making another film, although he would actually later return and direct the fourth film in the Lone Wolf series. So instead, Wakayama went with a director by the name of Kenji Musimi. Wait, did, did Wakayama try cutting, cutting a flip in front of him? In his office, well, he'd already him? seen him flipping. They they, oh, okay. they were making movies together. Oh, okay, so gotcha. he knew so, what he had. Instead, we've got Kenji Misumi. Misumi had begun his career after World War II, and he became an incredibly successful and very prolific director for Dae, mainly directing samurai and period films. And his successes led to Dae actually offering to let him direct some of their more prestigious films because the, the these samurai films were kind of seen, unless Kurosawa was making them, they were considered, you know, lower tier films. But he liked working on these. These uh, Chenbara films is what they call. That's what they referred to as, as these samurai movies. Swordplay movies specifically is what Chenbara films are. Oh, I thought it was the little creature from like Mexican folklore. That's mm. a chupacabra. Oh, all right. Close. And he actually directed the first film in the Zatoichi series starring Shintaro Katsu in 1962. Uh, he directed several other Chenbara films in the 60s, including several other films in the Zatoichi series. So he had a, he had a working history with Katsu. I actually feel like this is a strong get. Like it, it just, I mean, because I mean, one of the important parts about Koiki, uh, his original story and the screenplay is is the historical aspect, and you've got a guy who is very like his his skill level is high, and when it comes yeah. to period directed films, yeah, he's got like, a lot of experience doing this stuff. So in 1971, he was released from his contract with Dai when the studio filed for bankruptcy, and he was worried that this was sort of the end of things for him because he was making these samurai movies for them. Not a lot of other studios were making samurai movies, and. He had already begun working with Katsu a year earlier on one of the Zatoichi films. Those Zatoichi films were produced by Katsu Productions as well. 
But he was kind of afraid that the period drama films that he loved making so much were soon going to only be able to be made for television, not for the big screen. So when he was offered the chance to work on Lone Wolf and Cub, he kind of jumped at it, you know. But then there was also this fear that these period dramas were seen as too old fashioned for modern audiences. So Misumi added a lot of over-the-top violence to the film, something that mirrored the, the manga visually, but that was kind of rarely seen in these types of films at the time. The exception being, uh, there, there are some of the Kurosawa movies, Yojimbo and Sanjuro specifically, that introduced the visual of like the blood spraying out of a wound. But primarily a lot of these samurai movies of the time were fairly bloodless. Hmm. Yeah, you can only assume that uh, ninjas have very high blood pressure. Like for <laughs> yes. watching this, like, it just seems like they should be on medication. <laughs> very so stressful. So, <laughs> when someone cuts their head off, I mean, it just is like, here we go, we're out. <laughs> Splash waterfalls at Six Flags, baby. The first Lone Wolf and Cub movie was called Lone Wolf and Cub: Sword of Vengeance. At least that was the uh, the English title. It was released in Japan on January fifteenth, nineteen seventy two, where it was distributed by Toho. They they worked a deal with Toho to distribute the film. Toho also released it in the U.S. with English subtitles in August of 1972, a few months later. The film had been a success, and a second film in the series was already planned, and that was released only a few months later. So the first film was released in January of 1972. Second movie is released in April of 1972, just a little over four months later. And pretty much all of the creative team, including director Kenji Misumi, returned for the sequel. And the sequel really doubles down on the first film's depiction of over-the-top cartoonish violence. I mean, that is, in my uh, estimation, like the film that really sets the tone for the whole series is the second film in the series. And it was that excess that caught the attention of American filmmakers Robert Houston and David Weissman. So David Weissman, is uh, he's, he's an established filmmaker. Like he'd been uh, the assistant to Otto Preminger years earlier. He was a protege of Andy Warhol. He was a frequent uh, fixture at Andy Warhol's uh, factory. And he had been a big fan of the Lone Wolf and Club comics. So using funds that he made from his first film, the 1972 Edie Sedgwick vehicle Chow Manhattan, for which he'd won several awards, he purchased the rights to the film from Toho for $50,000. So with his partner, Robert Houston, who himself was a filmmaker and actor, mostly known for playing Bobby in Wes oh, Craven's Bobby. The Hills Have Eyes. There Bobby's a dumbass. Uh-huh. He is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've seen The Hills Have Eyes, but Bobby's a dumbass. The two went about recutting the films and adding their own voices to it. They even hired a team of deaf lip readers to help write dialogue that would kind of, kind of sort of fit the images. Oh, so cool. it's... As a result, it's one of the better dub jobs that I've seen. Uh, I mean, it clearly agree with that. It's pretty fantastic. (laughs) It's pretty, it's really impressive. And I'm normally very like anti watching dubbed versions of, of, uh, of foreign films, but this is kind of a different thing, like, because they created an entirely different movie out of this. Well, so, I mean, just, just throwing this out there. I mean, I did, I knew nothing about this movie going into it. And so, uh, you know, like a, a lot of this stuff, if you do even the base amount of research, you can find out that this was the first two Lone Wolf and Cub movies edited together and that sort of thing. But when I pulled this up on the Criterion channel is where I watched it. And it was the dub version. I immediately was like, 
no, I don't think I'm supposed to watch this. Like, <laughs> why did I just end up in the dub version? And it took a minute to like find out. Like, no, this is how this movie if is. It, this if is it's this Shogun movie. Assassin. It is the dub version. Yeah, it's the dub yeah. version, and it's the first two Lone Wolf and Cub movies edited together. And yeah. those are also, by the way, on the Criterion channel. All but, six of them are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it just, uh, but as I watched it, I actually, I don't know, man, I had no problem with it. Like, I had yeah, no problem with the dub. Yeah, the dub is good. It really is. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it really is. It's very smooth. It, so Shogun Assassin contains footage from the first two Lone Wolf and Cub movies, as Gary mentioned, but it's, it is mostly the second movie. It contains about 12 minutes from Sword of Vengeance, the first film, with the majority of the film, about 70 minutes, comprised of footage from the second film, which is called Baby Cart at the River Styx. And, and it's not as if they just show you the first 12 minutes of the first one, then cut it and you go into the second one. It's a completely different edit completely they like they, they they yeah they skip over some plot details in the first they one they change a lot of the plot yeah honestly. so they kind of because in in the original lone wolf and cub series ito agami's main like adversary is not the shogun it's the the uh yagyu clan uh there's a rival clan and they're the ones who frame him for killing his wife that's a completely different story than what you get here. In fact, the guy who you see as the Shogun and Shogun Assassin is not the Shogun in, in Lone Wolf and Cub. He is the leader of the Yagyu clan. Uh, the guy with the white hair and the white eyebrows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, they, yeah, they completely changed the story. I mean, there are elements of it. Obviously, there have to be elements of it that are very much the same, you know, but... They're all of the other fucking stories. There's the dude with the... Uh, um, and and you may have to forgive me here if I'm confusing the, the the manga with the movie, but there's there's like the guy with the revolvers who is that's chasing in, him down. Yeah, that's in one of the lone. I I've watched four of these movies this week, so some of the, the Lone Wolf and Cub movies, five if you count Shogun Assassin. Well, that's what I feel like. So, I, I, I some had of them the first two on in the background while I was working, and I was like, "Yeah, there's definitely a guy with a revolver or with two revolvers in one of them." And I do not remember if it's one of the first two. He ends Lone up being Wolf a dude that was like in competition one. with yeah with this dude for being the executioner for the Shogun, and fucks up, and so his whole. His whole he becomes like he's just wanting vengeance on. Are you talking about? Early. Is it the guy who they they uh they in I I want to say the third film. There's a guy who was in competition, and they fake his death by getting this other dude. Did, have you seen this, Gary? No, I don't think. Did you watch the third one? Okay, and so in this is a slight spoiler, but it's fucking cool. So I'm gonna tell you anyway. So in the third one, there's this guy who's like in competition for the the shogun's executioner uh, against ogami and he fails in like they they have to like battle each other essentially and the winner gets the job right. he fails and his, the leader of his clan admires him as a swordsman so he, he's sparing his life but they need to make it look like he has committed harikiri so they get this guy to come in who is they call him like the the face maker or something like that and this guy comes in and he has this, he puts this like mask on his face and molds it. It's like fucking Mission Impossible. And he turns right. into the other guy and then he has the other guy's face and then he kills himself. But it's, oh, a, it's like the reason he fucks up is he actually- It's very comic booky. He <laughs> ends up winning 
like he, he wins, but he like points the sword at the wrong, like towards yeah. the shogun. Yep. And that's like, yeah, which is the ultimate sin. Like you yes. can't, don't even point your sword at the shogun. And, yep. uh, and so he's immediately lost. So he's like brought shame to his clan. To his clan. Yeah. But yeah. That's anyway. the guy who they had, they fake his death in the third film. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. It's anyway, there, there's a lot of really cool comic booky elements in this series that you definitely get to see them in Shogun Assassin, but it continues. Like the series continues with some really cool, like weird over the top stuff that is straight out of a comic book. A guy being able to put a mask on his face and become somebody else is obviously one of those. Uh, there's also one in the, I think also the third film where Ogami is in like a Buddhist temple and these Buddha statues that are all around him are actually ninjas in disguise. And he mm. fights all these ninjas who are dressed up as Buddha yeah, yeah. Uh, wow it's awesome it's Holy so shit. cool That's he awesome. fights zombies in the sixth movie ah <laughs> the uh the supreme ninja the woman uh she one of her big things is also when she's killing the uh samurai she she chops off their knots like she yeah she has to yeah. chop off their knots and collect which them. brings like shame to their whole family yeah mm -hmm. which was also going to bring up my other wrestling references like it was more brutal than like brutus barb beefcake Wow. I was going to say it's like taking <laughs> Rey Mysterio's mask off of him. Yeah, true. And also bring true. shame upon his yeah. whole family. <laughs> that works as well. <laughs> but it's like it's like uh, a Klingon like a Klingon not fighting. There we go. No, that doesn't work as well. I don't I don't but, damn I mean, it. Kudos, I, I guess. That one. Shit. It's not Klingon. really the same thing. So, <laughs> speaking of the the uh, speaking of the Supreme Ninja though, um, my favorite move of hers is that her kimono has an ejector seat. What? Yeah. And Fuck. <laughs> that's by far. I mean, if we're if we're going there, that's by far the weirdest moment that I wanted to bring up in the movie. I love it. She she ejects out and then sprints backwards the entire way, make like keeping <laughs> eye contact with you the whole time too. It's, yeah. So I love it. Up. I love it so much. She's wearing just like fishnet underneath i guess yeah, yeah. like a fishnet bodysuit it's a hell of a thing. move listen if you're fighting someone and they eject themselves right the fuck out of their kimono and <laughs> then just run away from you while looking at you the entire time i'm freaked out yeah honestly. oh yeah i guess that's true <laughs> uh that's psychological that's right that's the cerebral assassin is what you would call triple her. h you just brought the truth this whole episode it's gonna be wrestling based let's get <laughs> let's let's just make an episode we should make a bonus episode where we compare <laughs> what wrestling storyline closely matches this film. Uh, the, um, <laughs> but no, no, that was the, the whole thing with this movie that works for me is uh, just how I feel like I saw this in a review somewhere. Somebody quoted it this way, but uh, so forgive me, but dreamlike this whole thing is it really is yeah yeah it's just dream dream logic and i mean it's and i think that comes from its origins as a comic book because it's it is you know it, as much as koiki likes to likes to ground his stories in real events and real periods of history like he's also definitely like a comic book writer and he's writing for the masses and he's putting in a bunch of weird, crazy stuff that would not happen in real life, but that's what makes it so fun. Right, exactly. Well, so this new edit that's being worked on by Robert Houston and David Wiseman, which by the way, Robert Houston is credited as the director on this, 
But by all accounts, it seems like him and Wiseman basically directed it, co-directed it, this new edit themselves, uh, like together. Uh, it might have been like a DGA thing. I'm not sure why only Houston gets the directing credit. Maybe it's because Misumi also has a directing credit on it. And there's probably something weird going on there, but I'm, I'm not really sure. But this has a uh, voice dubbing by Lamont Johnson, who's like a, he's an actor. He's done a ton of voice work and a ton of stuff. If you look up his IMDb, but also an unknown Sandra Bernhardt does who we all, I mean, you, some of our younger listeners might not know who she is, but she's a stand-up comedian. It's probably big in, I'd say the late eighties, early nineties, probably was kind of yeah. her, mm-hmm. her time. Um, yeah. She does the Supreme Ninjas. Voice. I mean, to go back to something we talked about previously in another episode, it's like Hudson Hawk. She's in that movie. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so she's there, but uh, she did it for like, I mean, she was unknown. Like Justin said, she did it for like a $200 flat fee. And if I'm not mistaken, she did every female voice in this movie. Oh yeah. Not just the ninja. <laughs> not just the, the Supreme Ninja. That's just like the most notable female that's in the movie. Right. But like she filled in like every, every woman's voice. And the voice of Dagoro, the, the the kid, was dubbed by a kid named uh, Gibran Evans, who was the son of Jim Evans. Jim Evans was an illustrator who's responsible for the film's iconic poster. It's a badass poster. And for the title treatment in the film. Like when you see Shogun Assassin hit the screen, that's his artwork. And his son oh, did cool. did the, the, the voice. Basically, he does more dialogue than anyone else in the movie. Yeah, that's yeah. true. God, I didn't think about that. I honestly think the kid's the kid's narration adds a lot to this movie. Oh yeah. I, think so uh, too, I mean, you, man. and you hear it like if, even if you've never seen this movie, like we talked about Wu Tang last week or is that, yeah, last week when we talked about 36 chamber of Shaolin, if you've ever heard liquid swords, I was by say they use Jizza, this, like he uses a lot. He uses that, that voiceover, but he uses a lot of sound clips from specifically not lone wolf and cub, but specifically from Shogun assassin. Wow. Yeah. But um, I don't know. There's something about the kids' voiceover because that is absent in in the original films. But it adds like a a touch of I don't know softness to the film for a film that's so like over the over the top violent. Because the thing is, in this version, a, a calm in the storm a little bit. Well, yeah, yeah. Because the the original Lone Wolf and Cub movies, uh, there is a lot of focus on the relationship between the father and son. And you see these tender moments and you see a couple of those in this, uh, like you see them in the bath, you know, him, you know, and things like that when they uh, visit, when they check into that hotel. But a lot of that stuff, which is a big part of the series, honestly, it's a big part of the series because right. again, that's what Kuiki was trying to show was this father son relationship. A lot of that gets cut out of Shogun Assassin and it focuses more on the kind of crazy elements, you know, the over-the-top violence and the the more exploitation movie elements of it. So I think having that voiceover and getting that point of view from Daigoro's you know, own mouth, I think it adds a lot to the movie, actually, that you might have missed with those other scenes being cut out. I agree. And one of the things I hated about a lot of reviews of this, and, and again, you know, this is at the time and this is clearly a grindhouse film and, and we're going to get into that, I'm sure. But like it, it just uh, a lot of the reviews like seem to focus in on uh, a the chubbiness and B is this kid's like very aware for like such a young child and blah, blah, blah. But watching it back, I watched it again today. And uh, I mean, the kid's saying he doesn't remember most of this 
specifically like he's yeah. he remembers uh the ninjas the bodies falling and the blood and you know like he has like visuals of that he's not saying like i'm this age right now and i'm telling you this story it's like a child like later on recanting right. like, or not recanting but recapping like what happened with him and yeah. his father and yeah. so anyway it reminds me a lot of um road to perdition yo we're gonna get into that bud Ooh. oh yeah <laughs> it should remind you of road to perdition <laughs> it's that's, that's a very good astute observation todd thank you so another very notable update on this is this new synth heavy very 1980s score the musical score which is obviously not the original score i think they also changed some of the sound effects and stuff in this but this new musical score was by w michael lewis and mark Lindsay. mark Lindsay was the lead singer of paul revere and the raiders so that's mostly what he's known for he didn't do a lot of movie scores but this is a kick-ass movie score i'm glad to hear you say that i love it too i think it's fantastic i've got uh, it on vinyl i've had it I, I got it a couple years ago at record store day i love this album i listen to it fairly often yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like some people write it off. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe it is just super popular, but uh, I think they're credited in this as the Wonderland Philharmonic. Yeah, which yeah. is just some bullshit yeah, they made that. up. Yeah, well, I think that's the house that Lindsay lived in. I was trying to look that up, and he called it yeah. Wonderland, like the studio. Isn't that where John Holmes murdered somebody? Wonderland? I, mm -hmm. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> wow maybe i mean the wonderland murders those are the wonderland murders oh man i gotta i should have researched that even further um, <laughs> he uses he uses some of uh what who was it kazure okami who like originally did the music he used some cues yeah. and some stuff in there but um i mean this this is a great soundtrack and paul paul revere and the raiders i mean they're not like one of the most famous bands in the world or anything, but they were around. They, they had the song, uh, like kicks keep getting harder to find. Like they had, yeah. um, they had that song, but, uh, I guess most notably just if we connected around is they're all over in, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, Paul Revere and the Raiders are used in that soundtrack. Uh, good yeah. thing is one of their songs. And that's, that's like in that, the biggest trailer from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. uh, that's part of them. So, you know, maybe Quentin's a fan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe Quentin's a fan of that. So the film was released to the Grindhouse circuit by Roger Corman's New World Pictures, uh, and it became a big hit. Like it was, I mean, again, very small investment on this. The the guys, they, they paid 50 grand to Toho. They had about three people dubbing all the voices, including themselves. <laughs> and then they sold it to Roger Corman, who Roger Corman ain't going to pay a whole lot for anything. So it was a big hit. But, you know, Gary, uh, you mentioned that you've read some of the reviews of this. Have you read any any modern day reviews on this? Some some internet reviewers? Yeah. Well, you know, Justin, as with any <laughs> he says movie. says that with an exasperated sigh. Yeah, <laughs> I read some. There were the professional reviewers that would have been fine, but, um, you know, we always have to find like the uh, less well-known, the uh, internet uh, commenters uh, that eventually, as you read through them all, you realize that somebody needs a nap. <laughs> Uh, so this first one is from Lost Nightmare 416. I will say this. 
Shogun Assassin as a whole has some bad reviews. I, I couldn't find many below like three stars or four stars, okay. which is good. interesting. Yeah. And then yeah. when you go to Lone Wolf and Cub, which I also tried to do, you don't find any very low at all. Like that's Lone uh, Wolf and Cub is very um, well loved. Yeah, so it's uh, it, it's interesting. I mean, even the worst of these are still like I have to say, not one star reviews, like three star at worst. Uh, anyway, Lost Nightmare Four Sixteen's title of his review is so awful it was a mammoth. Stay tuned. What it'll explain what itself, that? sort of. Okay. Okay. Uh, this film is absolutely terrible. All the way through those long, drawn-out hours of watching it, all I could think of was, when is this film going to end? Initially, I thought it was quite amusing that this tiny little child was going around with this mammoth of a man, killing all these people. I thought it was some rubbish comedy, but nope. It was even worse when I actually realized this film was meant to be taken seriously. Who really can take enjoyment out of this film? We see the mammoth take a bath with the child. We see the mammoth slaughter bunches of people. Why couldn't the mammoth just die? Anyways, do not watch this film unless you're a boring old fart. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is that review. I think that just revealed a lot about us, guys. Yeah. Okay. We're a bunch of boring old farts. Uh, Dr. Godzo says, crap, watch the real Kazuri Okami series instead. Dr. Godzo? Yeah, Dr. Godzo. From from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. That's him. He's famous. He says, this movie is crap. Basically a mesh of six really cool samurai movies mixed into one film that's utter trash and totally likes the feel of the originals. Ignore the rave reviews of the people who just don't know any better. Robert Houston, the, in quotes, the director, is actually a washed up actor from the 70s. Ugh! Another example of Hollywood taking something great and regurgitating it onto movie screens for retarded mass audiences to lap up. I noticed most people who remember watching this movie in the 80s are overrating this movie big time. I think perhaps they're not putting aside childhood nostalgia and voting based on that. I watched this in the 80s and I wasn't really impressed. However, when I saw the originals from the 70s, I was blown away. That's also when I noticed that the English dub voices are horrid. Ito Agabi's voice slash dialogue in Shogun Assassin is simply ridiculous. Look at this voice overcast. Sandra Bernhard? Jesus, what nonsense. The real voice of Thomas Saburo Wak Wakayami, I'm trying to read his spelling of this, is powerful and his <laughs> laugh is haunting and scary at the same time. I also love how the super hacks David Wiseman and Robert Houston credit themselves as, in quotes, writers. It makes me sick. Skip right over this mess and watch the other series instead. Uh, so he he needs a nap and uh, he needs a nap. And <laughs> was that in all caps, Gary? <laughs> it feels like it should be. Actually, if I could, uh, there's another one here from Govin Singh themed. He says this needs to be taken off the website and added to the list of banned films in the USA and hopefully the world. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> finally. And I'll stop. Bob Lipton, his title is, Were They Serious? What did the people who made this movie and others in the series think of it? <laughs> and them, would they even tell the truth if you asked? When this sort of bloodbath flick becomes popular, did they think they were entertaining a brave new world that had such people in it? Or did they think that, well, it's a job and they need a paycheck. So learn the lines, don't trip over the furniture. 
Or did they view the audience with contempt, like sneering at a bunch of four-year-olds offered a box of Malabars each? Stupid kids, I'll bet if we offer you Cheetos, you'll eat them too. Uh, what's wrong with Cheetos? <laughs> I love Cheetos. No. Cheetos are great. I don't know. I was hoping you guys should shed some light on that. That was that was a legit review, though. Actually, from April of 2020. So, Bob Lipton. Wow. Very angry. Needs a nap. Too angry. Too angry. Well, so, the film, you know, it, it's another one of those. It's a grindhouse movie. So, finding reviews from the time it came out are, are kind of difficult. But... It was released on home video in the UK in 1983 and almost became banned because of its excessive violence. It was not put on like the video nasties list or anything, but it came pretty close. Uh, but you know what? That excessive violence is part of what makes the movie so fun. Yeah, there was actually a review. If you go look at the IMDb, there is a review of the film who is a guy who says, I mean, he says, we'll see, but he says he was a sound engineer for the film he mentions that it was banned in 83 in the U.S. after it had come out in Grindhouse Cinema for the scene where he, you know, strips the woman down and, like, wants to warm up or whatever. I mean, it is a little rapey, but... Yeah, because it, it seems a little rapey, and he was just saying it's like, you know, it was pretty uh, uh, significant at the time that, that people were just like, whoa, 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 this is too much. But uh, anyway, yeah. It's uh, it's hard finding stuff. I mean, most of the stuff, like I said, like the professional reviews are just like, oh, it's fun, but it's, you know, it's fat samurai, this kid, they're, <laughs> you know, the kid seems well, real smart. He's telling the I'll story. You, <laughs> I love it. I love this movie. I think it's a ton of fun. And normally, if, you know, normally I would view something like this more cynically. You know, it's a couple of Americans buying up a Japanese film. They chop it up, they dub it, re-release it. And it sounds like it's just like a cash grab kind of thing, you know, on paper. And most of the time, that's probably what it would be. But something about this, you know, it's. It can be done and done well. It just, and it this is a perfect usually, example. Yeah. Normally you, you'd talk about a movie that was done like this and it'd be just a footnote when talking about the original film. Right. But this movie deserves like to be seen on its own, I think. I think it's really fun. Now, I'm not going to pretend that it's as good as the Lone Wolf and Cub movies, but it's a different thing. It's more fun than the first Lone Wolf and Cub movie. Uh, the lo first Lone Wolf and Cub movie has a lot of world building that's throwing a lot of the names of like Japanese clans and Jap Japanese history at you that it's hard to grasp if you're not uh, familiar with, with that history. Uh, now the second once you get into like the end of that one and into the second one and the rest of them they're all just a fucking blast but and the first one's still very good i mean it's just it throws a lot of information at you at once but this movie just gets this movie what it does is it, it breezes over that stuff by just showing you enough to let you know who ito agami is by using those first like 12 minutes of lone wolf and cub and then it gets you into all the fun shit from the second movie which is which i i kind of love that about it like this is a fun fun movie oh yeah it's the same thing man i thought that like you know i get it i get if some people have read you know these manga or uh were fans of the japanese version before which you know is you know with american audiences i feel like first of all probably the reason this is so huge is because of shogun assassin so 
anyway, but well, that's uh, the thing. I think this is an integral part of, of Lone Wolf and Cubs legacy because I do think most people in America, this is probably their first exposure, maybe their only exposure to the Lone Wolf and Cubs series. Right. And, and I think that it, it, it's amazing. Like even having gone back and even having read the original manga, like there's stuff about this that is just, it's created to be a grindhouse movie and it serves that purpose fully. Like it it just, it's exactly what it's supposed to be. I mean, they take, I mean, and I will say this, they take nothing from your main, like lone wolf character. They don't ruin him at all. They don't touch him. He's the same guy. He's the same guy. Uh, They just deliver everything in this easily digestible way and get you to like, just make it a blast. Like it's just a fun movie and they, they're right on the edge of like being ridiculous, but there's still something brutal about the violence that happens in it. And, uh, but there's something fun, like, you know, seeing people's heads cut off and blood spurting out their necks or seeing their legs cut off and like some stumps just sitting there on the ground. And like, there's just somebody's head getting a sword halfway through it. And like, there's just, there's some wicked shit. And of course, yeah. you know, like you mentioned, uh, Miss Kimono, like bouncing out of her outfit, running backwards. <laughs> um, such a bizarre, it's so uh, weird. And, and mixed it. with that soundtrack, like it's just, it just feels like, a perfect a perfect grindhouse movie it's like something that on paper should not work right it works yeah it works so well it really does it works it's everything you ever heard about like martial arts movies like like if you heard stories about like how cool kung fu movies or or whatever i feel like a lot of this movie is is what you're hoping to see like just the the insanity of sword fight and like, just these people getting slaughtered brutally. Yeah. And there's crazy stuff like the guy with gushing blood out of his neck, talking about always wanted to hear that sound. And, yeah. Uh, just the- and the fact that people have like full on monologues while they've got like a sword line going straight down their face with <laughs> right. blood yeah. pouring out, but they're just still talking to you for a few minutes before they die. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Like I, I, I don't know. There, there's something really awesome about this movie. And I'm not going to tell anybody ever to not watch the OGs or read the manga, because if you want like an in-depth story, you know, you, you want to really understand what the original like Kawiki is going for in that story, then, then fine. I mean, this is definitely valuable and it's a very cool story, but if you want to have a blast, just like watching a movie, like this is a fun ass movie. And, and like you said, I guess even the Lone Wolf and Cub series even gets this way, but man, Shogun Assassins. Awesome. And I didn't even care that I didn't understand everything. Like, I mean, like why all of a sudden the Shogun just wanted this dude dead or, you know, right. Whatever. Yeah, which is all, all, obviously that's all fleshed out pretty well in the full series. Uh, but that's not what they're going for in this. They just want an excuse to have fun and have an excuse for Ogami to just chop a bunch of limbs off. And I love that it's, I love that mashup of historical stuff and like very over the top, a modern approach to like an action movie. Cause I mean, I love that baby cart. I love that baby cart (laughs) that can do everything. It's got, it's bulletproof on the bottom. And yet, in some of the movies, it floats behind a boat, despite the the bulletproof 
plate on the bottom. Sure. Uh, it's got swords and uh, it's got swords inside of it everywhere. It's got a machine gun in it. I don't think you see that in Shogun Assassin. No. But in one of the movies, yeah, it's got a full-on machine gun inside of it. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty badass piece of, of engineering. Uh, Ogami definitely had a second career as an engineer when he built that car. But then you've got, I mean, all these other over-the-top elements. I mean, the Masters of Death. What a cool bunch of characters. Yeah. You know, I mean, those guys are very comic booky. You know, they've got the hats on like the um like the three dudes from Big Trouble in Little China, you right. know, the the big straw hats. But and I love that each one has their own like preferred weapon. One's got like the Wolverine claw thing, one's got just a a club with spikes on it. Like it's it's awesome, yeah. you know, it's really cool. And they defy gravity, you know, people much like in 36 chamber of Shaolin, you know, people will float when they need to <laughs> hop on top of another person when they need to that scene with the burning ship yeah, is yeah. when he does that pole vault over the side of the ship. Like he tosses right. his kid out into the water uh, <laughs> and then pole vaults out, like through the fire. It's a yep. hell of a stunt. Yeah, like, it, is, it is. And I don't know if that was Wakayama or if that was someone else. You can't see his face during it, but whoever did it like that is, and that's crazy. Yeah. Like, like he looked like he was in true danger. Uh, to be honest, like there was something about the opening credits and I think, you know, the kids opening monologue that just sucked me in, like from the, mm-hmm. from the word go. And I was, I was locked in. I don't think I touched my phone once. I, I mean, I was dialed in on this one. This is really great. Really Good. fantastic. I love it. I think it's so yeah. much fun. And it's like, it's the the purest, like, I don't know, man. It, it, I think Gary said the best, like, they made this a, a more easily, easily digestible, more accessible version of the original Lone Wolf movies. Mm-hmm. And that's not in any way a dig on those movies. I think the Lone Wolf movies are, all the ones I've seen are incredible. Uh, they really are. Uh, they, they ran for six movies, series runs for six movies, Four of those came out in 1972. All in the same year. They came out with the the fifth one came out in 75 or 73. And the sixth one came out in 74. So six movies over a period of two years. Four of those were directed by Misumi. And several were actually released in the U.S. market and marketed as Shogun Assassin sequels. So like Baby Cart to Hades. Uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, Baby Cart and Hades. They, they all have amazing titles, by the way. Awesome. Uh, was released as Shogun Assassin 2, Lightning Swords of Death. Another badass name. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, Baby Cart in Peril was released as Shogun Assassin 3, Slashing Blades of Carnage. <laughs> nice. Lone Wolf and Cub, Baby Cart in the Land of Demons, which was the, the f- fifth one, was released as Shogun Assassin 4, Five Fistfuls of Gold. Not as good of a title. I think Baby Cart in the Land of Demons is better. And then Lone Wolf and Cub, White Heaven and Hell, which is the final one, was released as Shogun Assassin 5, Cold Road to Hell. So there are five Shogun Assassin movies, six Lone Wolf and Cub movies. I guess that is probably a good time to get into our new segment. For viewing. So I don't know if you guys have anything here, but... Todd mentioned Road to Perdition earlier, so I think we have to discuss that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Road to Perdition was, of course, based on a comic book, 
And Max Allen Collins, the, the writer of the Road Perdition comic book, has gone on record as saying that he was heavily influenced by Lone Wolf and Cub, by the comic. Oh, okay. I was yeah. going to say, because, like, there's the kid, uh, you know, uh, monologue and the very quiet, very deadly dad. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, they, yeah, this this has all the all the same elements, just different time period and different country. Yeah. Obviously, other ones that would be good further viewing in this case are the, the other Lone Wolf and Cub movies. Sure. Well, <laughs> That's I, a- this this made me think of, um, as I was watching it, you know, with, with all the violence and the music together, um, it really made me think of Afro Samurai. And I love, uh, I love Afro Samurai, especially yeah. season one, just because, uh, you know, it's just badass from beginning to end. So if this kind of, you know, uh, gets you, get you going with, uh, you know, sort of the weird, eccentric, very, but yet very specific characters and yeah. like cold, quiet, um, hero who's just dead set on dead set on the goal um and if you haven't seen it you know i highly recommend just go ahead and get it on blu-ray it's worth having on your shelf i loved afro samurai um i mean we'd be stupid not to mention the mandalorian oh yeah oh my god yeah obviously (laughs) that is the if you i mean if if any of this plot sounds familiar then you've probably watched the mandalorian because the mandalorian is is heavily influenced by this obviously with the idea of of you know the child but that movie i mean that that show is very influenced by two things samurai movies and spaghetti westerns yeah all yeah. the all the stuff that we love here you know it's it's and it's really cool that something with those influences has become such a cultural phenomenon you know? yeah yeah huge i mean all the all the stuff around the holidays you know toys and whatnot and god just open etsy and just look yeah. for Mandalorian. Like you well, will be inundated with all kinds of stuff. What's crazy. Like, I mean, it's like, it's one of those things that like those lightning in the bottle uh, story ideas that just will repeat over and over again, you know? I, and, and you got to think that the, those aren't easy to find. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many we see all the time that are like, basically you can recount to like back to Shakespeare, like something with this plot, you know, but it's like, here is this father son kind of duo, yeah. this guy just protecting this child, like walking through and like, just, I, I don't know. I, it, it just feels like one of those things that we'll see repeated like yeah. multiple times over and over again. It's just, and John thing. Favreau, if you watch that Disney gallery, series mm-hmm. that's on disney plus he mm-hmm. he name drops lone wolf and cub like he fully oh, acknowledges cool. that this is an influence only wish and that baby yoda slash grogu would fire a fucking knife out of the side of his carriage every <laughs> once in a while into the dick of one of the stormtroopers or something <laughs> so the another other, the other thing it made me think of was um uh luke Besson's, uh leon yeah, I can and, see that uh, a little bit. Yeah, just the idea of like, you know, the cold, quiet killer with the young child and they're traveling together doing the thing. It's I was like, oh, it's kind of like that thing. But I was thinking about it, you know, from, you know, it's cool kind of seeing what Americans have done with it and then what the French have done with it. And, you know, and that sort of thing in anime, you know, Afro Samurai. I love seeing the different interpretations. Oh, yeah. it's weird with this similar of similar because, beats 
we, we we've hit on this already, but just the crazy part to me is is like this is the part where, uh, like Justin said, it apparently can be done. They totally Americanized it. It feels like these guys knew exactly what they were doing. They were making a fucking late night like shock film, right. a cinema shocker. They were uh, <laughs> they were they were doing one of these movies, but because it is done so well, it also intrigues you enough to take you to the original source right. material i feel like yeah. and so it elevates everything yeah and if you want to watch other stuff that people who were involved in this are made uh, worked on i would also recommend uh hanzo the razor hanzo the razor is a series of of films that star shintaro katsu and the first one of i think there are three hanzo the razors the first one is directed by misumi he actually made it so misumi made the first three lone wolf and cub movies needed a break because he'd made three within one year but then he goes and makes hanzo the razor same year 1972 as well so he, he's still making another movie just a different one that will take a break what are you gonna do with, what are you gonna do with all your downtime i'll make Probably a different make, movie make another movie uh, <laughs> yeah then of course then uh, uh buchi sato did the the next one and then misumi returned for the fifth Lone Wolf and Cub. But Hanzo the Razor is really cool. It's on Criterion as well. I know that's where Gary watched this movie. So we're probably too. That's about the only place you can stream it unless you have a Blu-ray of it. Uh, I would also say the Zatoichi series. 26 movies. There's plenty to choose from. They Ooh. all star Shintori Katsu. Uh, they ran from 1962 to 1989. 26 films. Uh, one of those was remade as Blind Fury, starring Rudger Hauer. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. About 1989, 1990 or so. Yeah, so Zatoichi, they're also out by Criterion, so they're very easy to find. Uh, either in a there's a giant box set with all 26 of them, or you can watch any of them on the Criterion channel, you know. So they're, and they're, they're about a blind swordsman. So it's another kind of, and that, that was kind of, part of the appeal when they when they were making uh, Lone Wolf and Cub was the idea of having, this was, Koiki mentions this in an interview, the idea of having a samurai with a handicap. So you've got Zatoichi, uh, who is blind. What's another kind of handicap? And the way that he saw it was you make him vulnerable by giving him a child because the way that he, he explains it when he's writing the comic book is that if you're writing a comic, you know that the main character has to live or their, or the comic books over. Right. Yep. So that you have to give them some sort of weakness, something to make the audience worry. That's why Superman has kryptonite, you know? Mm -hmm. So what do you do? You give him a child and then, yeah, he might be okay, but is the kid going to be okay? through this whole thing, you know? Uh, so that was sort of the way that he approached it is that the kid is his weakness. So he kind of got that idea from, from Zatoichi because Zatoichi had been being produced before he came up with the idea for Lone Wolf and Cub. Nice. That's, so that's cool. cool. There was a Lone Wolf and Cub TV series as well that ran in uh, like the mid seventies. Uh, Kawiki is, is also very vocal about his dislike of the TV show, uh, but he loves the movies. Of course he wrote, I think, five of the six movies i think you're at five of them four or five of them so he was pretty well uh, well involved there was also a video game like a uh, it's like a side scroller beat em up based oh, wow. on this based on shogun assassin that came out in the late 80s called samurai assassin i don't know it, it was like an arcade only 
release. There's also uh, Hawk and Chick. Um, I don't know this one. Yeah, if you watch Bob's Burgers uh, season five, yes, twenty, yeah, <laughs> and then season ten, episode six, there's a uh, they interact with this uh, with this late night uh, B movie uh, series from Japan called Hawk yeah. and Chick, and it's clearly yes. a it's clearly a lone wolf and club lone wolf and cub uh, spoof. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's fun. And there's been talk of doing an American remake, but nothing's ever really gotten off the ground. Well, Paramount mm. and Justin Lin have been working on this for yeah forever. It's been a it while like though since I've heard years. anything. I, I can yeah. find stuff back. And Darren Aronofsky at one point was set to helm like an iteration yeah. of it. Wow. Um, Andrew Kevin Walker, the guy who wrote Seven, <laughs> Sleepy Hollow, Panic Room, he apparently has like a treatment out there for it. You know that I, I think 2019 was the latest. I could find anything about it. And then, you know, so maybe pandemics even offset all that. Now I think it would come out and people would be like, your copy of the Mandalorian. Um, right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, <laughs> you're right. It's probably, it probably would be hard to do now, honestly, because of the Mandalorian, but you know, it's a great movie. And, and, and I would play Ogami. I don't know. Yeah. I would encourage you if you have, if you watched Shogun Assassin to go back and watch the Lone Wolf and Cub movies, they're all really outstanding, honestly. They're all worth watching. It's not like it's not like a a series where there's like diminishing returns on each installment. The second movie, which makes up the bulk of Shogun Assassin, is I think the quintessential Lone Wolf and Cub movie. But the sequels, the third one, the fourth one, like they're all really cool and really fun. Uh, they all have a lot of ridiculous shit going on, just like this one. They do the third, the fourth one dials in the bloodshed a little bit because they had a new director who wasn't quite as interested in doing that but it's still pretty damn bloody and there's still a lot of cool fights and stuff and wakayama is just a badass to watch i mean some of the things that he does with that sword the way that he twirls it and then puts it into the sheath uh like he's a fucking gunfighter twirling a pistol but doing it with a sword after slicing three people the quickness that he does that is one of the coolest things to watch to me. I mean, it's just so fun. It's also crazy to me that like, one thing I think is cool is to like build up characters. Like you said, the masters of death or whatever, like just to be these like notoriously badass gang, but still when they run up on this guy, like that's, he's kind of like, nah, sorry, you're still not yeah. this good. Dude, I don't the know. scene in the desert where they, the, the guy with the claws claws oh. into the sand and you see blood starting to pool. Yeah. That, what a great visual, man. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. There are so many shots like that in this that are pure, like pulp entertainment, you know, yeah. Yeah. it's just, it's, and it, and it, just, it, it was so much fun because cat was watching with me and was just like, Oh wow. Like that really happened. No, well, like, well, if you got to attack somebody in a desert, where are you going to hide? Yeah. <laughs> I like how they he he pokes a couple of them and then the rest of them just pop up like, well, yep, <laughs> this, we go. this is not working. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's about all we got for Shogun Assassin. I'm really glad that you guys enjoyed it. Uh, I'd, I'd seen it before, but it has been, gosh, I think there was a Blu-ray by um, Enemigo or somebody that came out and I want to say it was a couple years after Kill Bill. So probably mm. 2007, 2008, something like that. And I rented it back then, back when Netflix was still a thing you got in the mail. 
And, but that's the last, I, that's the first time, this is the first time I've seen it since then. So uh, I, I would highly recommend the Lone Wolf box set that Criterion has out. That's how I watch these. Uh, they're gorgeous Blu-rays. If you're watching them on Criterion channel, it's the same, uh, the same transfer. They look outstanding. And, and come the, the, the thing with Shogun Assassin is that there were, because this was like a grindhouse movie, there weren't really any good prints for them to go by. So what, and I'm assuming that Criterion is using Animigo's reconstructed version of this because mm-hmm. what they did, what Animigo did when they released that back in the, the early 2000s was they had to go to the original elements of Lone Wolf and Cub and reconstruct Shogun Assassin based oh, wow. on shitty bootlegs because that's all that was available for years to find out where the cuts went. And they basically reconstructed it and re-edited it themselves. Luckily, they still had the uh, the sound elements, but there wasn't a good visual copy of it, so they had to essentially make the movie all over again. That's I was going to say, like having yeah. to use it as a blueprint. That's yeah, that's wild. That's wild to it's think pretty, about. It's pretty cool that because for years and years there was no way to find this movie. This is the sixth episode and final degree of Kill Bill, but we've still got one episode left in this series because we've talked about all the movies that inspired Kill Bill. We can't end this series without talking about the movie itself. So we're going to be talking about Kill Bill itself next week. We're talking about volume one. We're talking about volume two. We're talking about the whole bloody affair. I don't have a copy of the whole bloody affair, so I'm not actually going to talk about that, but... Uh, unless you guys can find me a copy. If somebody can find me a copy of The Whole Bloody Affair, I would really... I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, we're talking about Kill Bill, the entire saga next week on the show. So you guys know where to find it. It's on fucking HBO Max right now. It's very easy to find. So we'll be back next week for that. That'll be the final episode of the series. And we're moving on to something completely different in two weeks. <laughs> we'll tell another so... story after that. But for now, let's... The, the, the reason we've been talking about all these movies is up next week. Kill Bill said, I oh, could watch it and be like, I know her. I know him. I know where that's from. I know where that's yeah. from. I know what movie they're watching. I know why she has that eye patch. I know why Quentin Tarantino never had an original idea in his life. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody, Somebody definitely said that on Twitter. Said that to us on Twitter. <laughs> we didn't engage because people like that are just looking for reasons to argue. i feel like it's probably more frustrating for them if we don't argue back exactly which is which is you know quietly uh entertaining to me i'm i'm (laughs) so sorry i missed that because i would have totally engaged (laughs) the the easiest way with that is they they want you to fight back so it's just uh (laughs) that just fuck them that's why it gives them power yeah trolls beware send the shock Trolls will ignore you. Todd can be canceled and he will engage. That's <laughs> true. Everything yeah, we, we, that you should show on social for... media, Todd does. Go for it. <coughs> we did the show for a long time without Todd. We can do it again without him. <laughs> you always remember that, Todd. So, I'll keep it in anyway, mind. for well, Todd, for now, where can you be found on the internet? I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all the socials. And also 
And I, well, I didn't know if we were still running the ad or not, but, um, well, the ad says coming in January, so we're probably going to either oh, need yeah, a new ad. Well yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, January. Oh, if you like up. Star Trek, if you like Star Trek, come listen to my show, uh, computer resume podcast. Uh, it is at computer resume on all the socials. Do you, do you have to explain to people what computer resume podcast means? Cause it sounds like it could be like a, a podcast about computer shit. I've, I thought it I've was got, computer I've, resume. I've yeah, computer you're, resume. You're, I've I've gotten someone else who is like computer resume. I'm like, no, there's not a little. It's computer resume. God damn it! I try. I tried to find a really. good... I was stuck on Trexperts for the longest time, and it just I couldn't figure out a decent logo or a decent spelling for Trexperts that I liked. So I went with yeah. Computer tre- resume. Trexperts just sound like Trekkies. Just coming everywhere yeah <laughs> you're hearing the frustrations Spurts. of forming a yeah. brand right here folks <laughs> anyway computer resume podcast despite the fact that the name doesn't sound like it has anything to do with star trek it does it does and the logo has a big starfleet you know thing sure. with mic with a microphone on it so it's kind of there so you go you find the logo first yeah <laughs> you find the logo really important for an audio um, for an audio podcast i'm all about i'm all visual. about the visuals i'm all about the visuals for audio podcasts guys anyway that first episode will be dropping any day now yeah probably as, 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 the the little your episode zero is out as we're recording but yeah episode one i think will probably be out around i said, I said february the 15th um, yeah, and, I wanted to give uh, myself some time to schedule some folks and do some research and uh, I'm not as familiar with editing, so I'm getting my feet wet doing the editing and uh, we're moving right along. Yeah, so this episode that we're talking on right now, this will drop on like the uh, 11th. Oh, so okay. we'll be very close to that release date. Nice. Yeah. Gary, what about you? Where can you be found on the internet? I mean, this is Gary Horn. I also have another brand called This Is Pro Wrestling. If you'd like to hear the reverse of this and hear me talk about wrestling and relate it to movie instances, you could do it there. It's at TIPW <laughs> and, Show. And, you know, the name This Is Pro Wrestling tells me exactly what your podcast is about. <laughs> right? <Damn> it. <laughs> it's called Stone Cold Resume. That's the, that's, that's the, uh, that's what we've got. <laughs> changing the name as uh, well i am at justin underscore bishop i do not have another podcast because i spend too much time on this one so <laughs> until next week May oh the wait week. cinema shock cinema underscore shock i forgot that you can follow the podcast cinema underscore shock twitter instagram go to facebook we're at cinemashock.net you can find merch buy our t-shirts you can you know find all the episodes go listen to some old shit i don't know Find links to subscribe, rate and review. I'm saying all the things that people are supposed to say at the end of a podcast. You're doing it. You're doing great. Show us to all your friends and neighbors. Yeah, Yeah. share us, share us. Even if if you don't like them. Maybe because you don't like them. Upload these episodes to Pornhub. Yeah, do it. We're not going to do it. (laughs) They're They're only taking verified accounts now. And I don't know what it takes to get verified, but I'm not sure that I want to find out. We can find out. <laughs> Listen, Until next week. I'll do a lot for I'll do a lot for this podcast, guys. So we'll off off air, off off mic, we'll we'll discuss what needs to be done to make we'll that figure happen. it out. Yeah. Mm.
prepare for some solo Todd videos. <laughs> I have no problems taking my shirt off on camera. This is uh, the step this Todd well, videos are trending. Well documented. <laughs> what are you doing, Step Todd? <laughs> <laughs> All right. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. Johnny Wakagi O Mati and Mas. You nailed it. Thank you. I bet that's accurate. <laughs> I'm not gonna <laughs> Thank you.